This podcast is the design of City Sites Urban Media, and our goal is to bring into focus the difference between culture and God's ideas found in His Word. To learn more, go to citysitesurbanmedia.com. If you could go back to the city of Jerusalem during Bible times, the biggest thing you'd see is the temple. This beautiful building was designed by King David and built by King Solomon, and they believed that it was the home of the God of the universe. Wait, I thought God's home was in heaven. Well, the whole point of this earthly temple is that it's the place that overlaps with God's heavenly home. The temple is where God lives and rules all creation as king. That's cool, but even Solomon, who built the temple, didn't believe that it could contain the God of the universe, right? Yeah. The building was just a symbol, and it pointed to the fact that all of creation is God's temple. And that's actually what the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1, is all about. Really? It says that creation is God's temple? Well, it doesn't need to say it. The whole story shows it. In Genesis 1, God creates an ordered world out of a dark wasteland by speaking in a series of seven days. Then on the seventh day, God's presence fills creation as he takes up his rest and rule. Similarly, the tabernacle and later the temple were built and dedicated in a series of seven speeches and seven days, after which the priest or king could rest and rule in God's presence. Ah, so all of creation is where God intends to dwell. It's like his temple. Exactly. This is the City Sites Podcast with Larry Kutzler. Well, thanks for joining us. You know, one of the strongest symbols in the Bible is the temple. Its mention is always associated with worship and sacrifice, and throughout biblical history, God has had a temple. Today, I want to take a look at the timeline in the Bible as it describes the various temples, and I have asked Chris Heeb from Chosen People Ministries to join me as my guest. Chris, we're going to talk today about something that I don't think most Christians talk about very much, and it's a topic called the temple. And all the way through the Old Testament and into the New, especially the prophetic books, there is this concept of the temple. In fact, the New Testament teaches that we as believers become the new temple of God. So temple is very, very important, that image of temple. Tell us about why temple is so important, especially to the Jews. Well, it's interesting, Larry, if, uh, you know, starting with the tabernacle, in the wilderness with the nation of Israel that came out of Egypt. God had them set up a portable temple called the tabernacle, and he used that for over 400 years to worship him. Now, when you and I think of worship in the Western mindset, we think of, you know, people getting up on a stage and singing and uh, maybe dancing and tambourines and stuff like that. And that's a part of worship, but worship from God's standpoint is with his physical priests doing sacrifices because of our sin nature. And it's interesting, by the time we get to the physical temple, the second one, the Herod temple that Jesus was involved with, he called it his father's house. And so you could imagine when he was so angry with the religious leaders, he felt they had radically corrupted his father's house, and he wanted to actually evict them. But he didn't get to do that, but he did get to shut down their worship system, which was the blood atonement system. 
with his sacrifice. So in the original, there was the tabernacle, and that was usually made of, you know, some sort of a structure made from animal hides, etc. And then they built a permanent temple in Jerusalem, and that was done by Solomon. That was the first structure, the first temple. So tell us a little bit about where that temple was built, because it was built upon a mount, a hill, a Mount Moriah, and there were significant things that took place there, all kind of tying in to the idea of sacrifice. Yes. Well, it's interesting. when you, You have to go back to Genesis 12, and the most significant personage outside of Moses, and potentially even more, was an individual called Abraham, or eventually Father Abraham. But God tells Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, in a distant land. It was about a three days journey in in the land of Moriah. And when he gets there, there is a hill. There's a, a, a hill that God designates and it's, it's considered the, the pinnacle of Mount Moriah. And he almost sacrifices his son there. It, this is actually the second most significant event in Judaism, only uh, behind the great Passover in Egypt and the deliverance. But on Mount Moriah, God has Abraham almost sacrifice Isaac. The Muslims say it was Ishmael, but the Bible is clear that it was Isaac. So this would have been the designated area of the holy place. God chose this place. As a matter of fact, and Moriah is kind of a secretive word. Now, there's an abbreviation of Moriah, Yah. It's like hallelujah. It's uh, the Lord has his name in an abbreviated form tacked on to the end. And the most accurate Hebrew scholars today says Moriah means the bitterness of the Lord. This is, this is where he has to sacrifice himself on, on multiple levels to bring us to sanctification. Okay, before we get there, there was a king that came along. This was the same plot oh. of land that you're talking about with Abraham and Isaac that King David came and bought. Tell us that. Yes. King David was told to take over this area called Salem, or eventually Yerushalayim. And there happened to be a Jebusite named Aruna or Orona, depending upon how you pronounce it. But he had a threshing floor where he used to bring his plant harvest primarily like wheat and his crops up there, and he used to sift them. Because it is a type of a plateau, and he would use these really large funky rakes, and he'd throw the food up, and the chaff would blow away. Okay, And I want to say the area was roughly about the area of half a football field the original uh, area of the plateau. And David says to him, I would like to purchase this. And he says, no, no, you are the king. I'll give it to you. And David says, no, I must purchase this for the Lord. So no one can say that I took this. And that was, there's every reason to believe historically, etc. This is exactly the spot where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. But the story doesn't end there. This same spot on this Mount Moriah is where the temple, the first temple, was built by King Solomon. Right. And Solomon was designated to build this temple because he was not a man of blood. David had a lot of blood on his hands. And Solomon was, you could make a case, technically the first political, spiritual priest king 
in Jerusalem, and that's where the temple was built, and that's where the sacrifices were set up, and the Holy of Holies. And this was God's, let's say, condo on earth. Of course, his real living space is in heaven, but he had a place called the Holy of Holies, and that's where his glory would manifest. Tiny room, I want to say it's an 8 by 10 or 10 by 10 room, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant, you know, everything that was brought out of the wilderness, the Ten Commandments, uh, the, this Moses' staff, and a handful of other things were put in this Ark, and this was considered the presence of God on earth. Of course, we know then that God was so disappointed with their idolatry that eventually came into them that God had the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar, come and destroy the temple and take them away to what we would call Iraq, right? Rough Babylon, you know, very close to Baghdad. And he took them into captivity for 70 years. After that, and in between that time, Cyrus, the Persian, the Iranian, takes over Babylon. And Daniel tells Cyrus, hey, our 70-year captivity is up today, and the God of heaven and earth has said, you're going to release us and let us go back to Jerusalem. And Cyrus goes, that works for me. He goes, take all your temple artifacts, everything, and go back and do what God has told you to do. That's why Cyrus is considered the greatest Gentile leader in biblical history, an Iranian, a Persian, which is so ironic because of the enemy issue today. We know Daniel was buried there uh, in Iran. We know probably Ezekiel was. We know that uh, Mordecai was. I mean, a, there's a whole bunch of famous Jewish people because they were, that's where their captivity was. So they go back and start working on what you would call the second temple. And the second temple started by Ezra and Nehemiah, and it was, you know, obviously very broken down, and they started cobbling it together. They didn't have the real manpower. They didn't have the Levite priests to help really rebuild it. It took a long time. So that was the temple that King Herod in Jesus' day was also expanding and making more beautiful and so forth and so on. That is also the same temple that Jesus would have been in. That's right. And Herod tripled, quadrupled the complex. If you were to see an aerial view of the Temple Mount, you would see where the Golden Dome of the Rock is. There's actually an elevated slab. I want to say it's probably like two football fields together kind of in a square. That was the original Temple Mount. I want to say, let's say five acres, six acres. I mean, way smaller than the 35 acres that's being used today, which Herod expanded from Solomon's time. And so it's a misnomer to think that that whole area was a temple. It was, it's, uh, it was just dramatically enlarged. So that particular temple that Herod expanded, Jesus was in, was destroyed in 70 AD. So all the sacrifices that the Jews were doing in the temple ceased. And that was their one way of getting right with God, right? That's right. Without blood atonement, your sins cannot be forgiven. What's ironic is, Larry, that Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed. He also hinted at the temple he was in, the physical temple, was going to be destroyed and resurrected in three days. They couldn't handle either one because they, at the time they were working on the temple, Herod had been working on the temple or his, him and his sons 
for like 60 years or something in that time. What's interesting is, Larry, when Jesus was crucified, there was an earthquake that went through Jerusalem, and that's when it, I believe it, it did some significant damage to the temple because it said that the veil was torn from top to bottom, and I'm convinced, because it's right on an earthquake fault line anyway, that there was probably some significant reshifting of the stone. And that for the next 40 years, God did not accept the Yom Kippur offering, sacrifice, which was the most significant sacrifice in Israel of its time. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was basically saying the blood atonement Levitical priesthood system is over. So from that time to today, and this is probably why the Jews are so antsy or, or wanting to build the temple, they want to get back to the blood sacrifices for their atonement. So between 70 AD and today, how do Jews get their sins atoned for since they can't do blood sacrifices and they don't accept Jesus as the atoning sacrifice? You know, Larry, I say this with such sadness. They cannot. The rabbinical Judaism has been dramatically expanded since the first century, and they've come up with good deeds, mitzvotes, uh, that's what good deeds are, charity work. If you ever notice on especially uh, PBS Channel 2, I would say the majority of major foundation contributions to public charity is uh, the Jewish community. I mean, they underwrite massive amounts of public awareness kind of things. They underwrite a tremendous amount of hospital, you know, work uh, in, in America and around the world. They see the only way that they can do well by God is to do good humanitarian work. At least this is from the non-Orthodox position. The Orthodox believe they get as close as they can back to the old system by prayers and study of the word, primarily the Torah, the first five books. They are pleasing God. And it is a type of a sacrifice in its own way, but it's definitely not the sacrifice that God would accept for atonement of sins. So you can see why the Orthodox really want to get a third temple built. Right now, of course, there's some problems with that. Number one, a lot of the secular Jews could care less, right? Because they, they don't care. But the Orthodox Jews do care. They've been training. Uh, there's an institute there that trains priests. Uh, they've got all the instruments. Temple the Institute. Been there many times. And uh, it's a great you know, place to learn. And so everything is quite ready to, to go ahead. The problem is what we're talking about where that first and second temple stood now stands the Dome of the Rock, which is under Muslim jurisdiction and control. So something has to happen to those folks or that Dome of the Rock before they can do any construction. So there, there are some problems here, right? Yes, it's a very big issue. Now, it's interesting, Larry, which precipitated this show was I mentioned to you that I observe and follow Israeli politics closely. And something has happened the last three to four years, five years at the most. You cannot run for prime minister or the head of the country without answering questions on your position on rebuilding the temple. Now, Americans could care less. You know, our temple, if you want to call, we have a civil temple worship. It's Washington, D.C. We have all these uh, magnificent Greek Roman edifices, right? 
Well, the, the Jews only had one, and that, of course, was the temple in Jerusalem. But what's fascinating is, so now, out of the blue, Israel, which is primarily a secular nation, is talking about reinstituting what made them a theocracy. The only legitimate theocracy in history was Israel, and that was for 120 years with Saul, David, and Solomon. Now, Iran today tries to run as a theocracy, a Muslim Shiite theocracy, and their job is to cause as much trouble in the world and destroy Israel and the Jews because otherwise they are not worthy for the Mahdi, their concept of the Messiah, to return. Pretty awesome stuff. So now, when you go to Israel, you will find out the talk of the country, at least on a semi-regular basis, is, what do you think about the temple? Should we build a temple? Should we not build a temple? Where do we build a temple? But again, if you walk up onto the Temple Mount, I've actually walked it off. I'm an ex-golfer. I've walked it off. There is, on the north part of the Temple Mount, or if you're looking from the Mount of Olives, there is at least a football field empty on the original Temple Mount, there's about 85 yards from the from the blue, or it's called the Golden Dome, but the walls are blue. Golden Dome of the Rock, if you walk over to that, that edge, the platform, it's about 85 yards. You, you do the other direction, you go about 150 yards, you can make a pretty darn significant structure there without ever touching the Golden Dome. It's still that whole land is still, that whole community there is controlled by the Muslims. So we're not quite sure how that all is going to happen. But a third temple will be built on that site at some point. Some commentators say that it will probably be built around the time, in eschatology terms, the tribulation. Again, it's speculation, not sure. But a third temple will be built. So tell us about the third temple. Well, <laughs> you know, Larry, this is one of my uh, uh, obsessions in life. You know, I spent a bunch of time in the Temple Institute. I have a frame picture the Orthodox imposed the third temple. They think it's the millennial temple of Ezekiel 40 through 48. The okay, before you get there, because we don't confuse them, let's yeah. just stay with the third, okay, the third temple. temple. Yeah. Okay, they are convinced that God's purpose to bring them back to the land was not to sing Kumbaya. <laughs> it was to restore biblical worship. Remember, biblical worship, again, is fairly different than what I would call Western worship. You know, where you sing, you know, 20 minutes, half hours a song. You know, you throw some extra change in the plate. This was an all-encompassing purpose of life. The temple was a 24-7 operation, and it was the center of Jewish life. And that's why the Judeans, and really when you look in the New Testament where it says Jews, it should really say Judeans, they were by far the most snooty and upper crust Jews in the world because they knew the Messiah was coming from the tribe of Judah and they had the temple. So it's like, you know, the people that live in Washington, D.C. think that they're the greatest Americans on some level. I mean, you've been there. It's spectacular, right? So the Jews have been waiting almost two millenniums 
to get back to the land they were promised. God says, I'm going to kick you out of the land twice. I'm going to bring you back twice. And when I bring you back the second time, you will not be removed from that land. And I'm going to restore your worship or the worship of God. I think we're on the cusp of that. As a matter of fact, I was just reading yesterday that the Orthodox are talking about, and there's like at least six denominations or factions within that term Orthodox in Jerusalem, but there's at least 900,000 Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem proper, okay? They're talking about, hey, temporarily we could even put up a tabernacle, a canvas temple, why we are painstakingly putting it back together, because I think they got to get Levites to hand become the cutters, the carvers, and remember later there's the wild card, the, the ashes of the red heifer, because the world is defiled since the destruction of the second temple. That's why the Jews, Orthodox Jews, were black and white. So this third temple is built. They go back to animal sacrifices for the sins of the, of the people and the nation. It is this temple that the Antichrist enters during the seven-year period known as the, the Tribulation, three and a half years in, he, at the beginning of that three and a half years or seven years, he has a peace pact with the, the Jews and everything is rosy. Three and a half years later, he's going into the temple where the sacrifices are taking place and he stops them and demands worship. That's the temple that we read in prophecy right. where he, he's involved. Right. Now, if, if you were a Jewish person and you studied with the Orthodox, you would find out that the most significant passage in Scripture and history is probably Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It's so significant, as a matter of fact, if you're a yeshiva student, a male, whatever, you are told it is forbidden to study Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 without a rabbi present. I want you to think about that. And I've, ta- I've spoken to numerous Orthodox young men, right, about this. They said almost the first thing that they do when they get away from the rabbis is they will go someplace alone, coffee shop, wherever, and they will pull out Daniel 9, 24 through 27 and try to figure out. And it's this cosmic nuclear scriptures about the Messiah and you could make a case it's there, there's a Messiah first coming and a Messiah second coming. And that is the ultimate debate between Jews and Christians. And remember that debate, the Christians at that time were Jews. So it was a, it was a factional tribal dispute. Is Jesus the Messiah, the King of the Jews? We know that as believers overwhelmingly. He's taken over about a third of the planet. If you believe the numbers, there's at least two to two and a half billion Christians. I'm ultra excited, as excited as I am about the twins, you know, winning their division. It's nothing compared to the temple. Okay, so we've done a timeline from the first, second, and third temple. Third temple is yet future. There is a fourth temple, and many believe that probably the third temple will be expanded or it'll be destroyed or it'll be remodeled and extended into a millennial temple that is really absolutely huge. And we read about that in Ezekiel 40 through 46. And speculation says that's probably where Jesus will rule and reign the earth for the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ from that temple. Is that what you believe? I'm convinced of it. You remember the disciples were sitting around in 
Acts chapter 1, verse 6, verse 4, 5, 6, the disciples are sitting around with the risen Lord saying, hey, Lord, are you now going to set up your kingdom? The temple is behind us or over our shoulder. You've proven that you are God, that you've overcome death. You should be able to walk in now. The Romans should even worship you, right? But let's start this kingdom. We've been waiting for it for a long time. And the Lord says, whoa, boys, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's, that's not the plan. It's way over your heads, as a matter of fact. But I want you just to worry about 10 days from now, Father's going to send the Holy Spirit. And that ended up being Pentecost. And Pentecost, as we know, radically changed. That was a spiritual nuclear bomb, boom, that has been changing the world since then. The book of Acts is the book of the Bible that's actually open-ended. We're living out the book of Acts today. But so if you look at Ezekiel 40 through 48, you find out it is so massive. And if you go to the Temple Institute, they are preparing for it's roughly a square mile, which is roughly the size of old Jerusalem. I think the Messiah will kindly evict everybody and make the largest, I I hate to use this, I don't mean to demean, theme park. It will be the worship theme park of world history with him at the center of it for a thousand years. And so the nations will come up to Jerusalem. They'll probably come to that that temple to, to worship there will be peace on earth, et cetera, et cetera, for a thousand years. Now, that's as far as we want to go with the temple today. But I want to know from this timeline, Chris, this temple, this image of worship and sacrifice, what does that mean for us, the church? Why is it important for us to know these things? You know, Larry, uh, God's calendar is different than our calendar. His calendar is all a calendar of salvation. By the way, that is the name of Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua, salvation. So he starts the clock. I mean, yes, does he in a very virtually secretive way start in the garden in Genesis 3, Adam, Eve, Satan, and him, and says, I will, I will crush you, Satan, and the seed of the woman will destroy you. Now, that was Jesus But God kind of peels back the onion with Abraham. I don't think Satan has any idea what was going on there. And then he started with this area that's in a desert area. It's a part of the Judean wilderness. Jerusalem is a part of Judean wilderness. And he does a sacrifice there. And and God intervenes and uses a ram. The second time God does a mega event, he uses a lamb in Egypt to deliver them a ram and a lamb. And the third time God does an intervention is with the lamb man himself in Jerusalem at Golgotha, what we call Calvary, at the temple or right next to the temple on Mount Moriah. And we know that the restitution of the world, the reclamation, the restoration will take place in Jerusalem. It says that the Lord, the the angels told the followers, this same Jesus you see going up into heaven as we speak is going to come down in like manner to earth and essentially take it over. It's going to be an invasion. They don't mention he actually comes on a white steed. They don't know that. He's going to have a magnificent horse, a white horse, and he's going to gallop through the sky into Jerusalem, landing on the Mount of Olives, causing the greatest earthquake in world history. And he is going to, in my opinion, uh, gallop in the air 
through the Golden Gate, right there on the east side of uh, Mount Moriah on the Temple Mount, and he's going to declare himself. He's going to walk up, in my opinion, with his horse into the temple and go, I am God, and stop the world insanity. Now that's, I'm salivating, Larry, for the insanity of this world to stop. And the only way that can happen is Jesus coming back to the temple and his throne room. The most important message, of course, in this world today is Jesus Christ and his return. Yeah. I mean, the message is really the gospel, but a part of that gospel is, is his return. And that's what we as Christians need to focus on. Sometimes we focus on a whole lot of other things, right? Oh, yeah. And not, not to say they're all bad, but the most important thing is that our hearts are right, our hearts are, are waiting and praying for that return. We should be conscientious of that because it could be at any time. And we will see that new temple. It, we will see that temple being built in Jerusalem and be a part of it in our worship of Jesus. That's right. And, you know, probably the most controversial place after the Temple Mount is right there. It's called the Western Wall. The Jews have been there since the time of Christ praying at the Temple Wall for the return or the coming of the Messiah. They know there can be zero world peace, zero restoration until the Lord comes. That's what the Western Wall is really all about, praying for the Messiah to come. You and I know it's the second coming. They don't know that. But it's getting so much closer. There's probably 100,000 Jewish believers in Israel as we speak, which is a massive number considering there are only 7 million people. Well, Chris, you've been a delight helping us to walk through this timeline of the temple and the conclusion that we've come to that Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Shalom. Thank you for joining us today. Every Friday, we bring you this podcast with interviews with people who are challenging the status quo of Christianity and challenging the cultural norms of our day. Please help us get the word out by sharing the link to this podcast with your online friends and family. Our website also contains other podcasters who are part of the City Sites network of communicators, all sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Our website is citysitesurbanmedia.com. This is the City Sites Podcast Network. 